0: good morning. It's uh, lovely to be here this morning on this fine but very cold morning. Um, And we're finishing up a a series that started a couple of weeks ago on prayer. And there is enormous power when the church prays. One of my favorite Christian bands is a group, uh, you may remember them, those of you of a certain age, called Casting Crowns. And they once speculated... Wow, I had a whoop. I'm not, I'm not used to whoops. There we are. Um, and they once speculated what would happen if the church unleashed the awesome power of prayer. And there is a song that they sang a few years ago now, uh, which goes, What if the armies of the Lord picked up and dusted off their swords, vowed to set the captives free and not let Satan have one more? What if the church, for heaven's sake, finally stepped up to the plate, took a stand upon God's promise, and stormed hell's rusty gates? And then they ask, what if his people prayed, and those who bear his name would humbly seek his face and turn from their own way? And what would happen if we prayed for those raised up to lead the way? Then maybe kids in school could pray and unborn children see light of day. What if the life that we pursue came from a hunger for the truth? What if the family turned to Jesus, stopped asking Oprah what to do? And I think that's a really, really powerful, powerful statement. And it comes from 2 from Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name, God says, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. It's a huge privilege to pray. God, the creator of the universe, invites us to come directly to him with the things that are troubling us. It's direct, it's intimate, and it's powerful. Because when God puts his power behind our prayer, incredible things can and will happen. The writer of the Hebrews in chapter 4 says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I once heard an interesting debate between a theologian, a man of God, and an atheist. And the atheist during the discussion told the theologian that when something that is being prayed for happens, such as a person who is ill getting well or something that was lost being found, then it's really just a coincidence. And the theologian answered with what I thought was quite a clever response. He said, well, I, I don't know whether that's true, but all I can tell you is that when I pray, coincidences happen a lot. And I like that. There's a, there's a, f- a famous story, which you may have heard, uh, of a soldier during the American Civil War, and he wants to go home to his mother. He's, he's, he's just received news that his brothers who are fighting have been and he's the last remaining son. And he knows that his mother is absolutely distraught on their farmstead, and he wants leave so that he can go home and comfort her. So he goes to his superior officer, and the superior officer says, absolutely no way, we can't spare anybody, we need every man. Uh, you know, And he says, well, well, what can I do? And he said, well, the only thing you can do, he said, is go and ask the president. And if the president, he's the commander-in-chief, if he says it's okay, then that's okay. And the They're going going through Washington, so he takes the opportunity to go to the White House. And of course, as you could expect, it doesn't go very well. He goes to the gate outside the White House, and there's a sentry on the gate, and he says, what do you want, son? And he says, I want to see the president, and the sentry laughs and tells him to get lost. And uh, he can't get any further. So he goes to a park bench, and he sits on the park bench, and he begins to sob. And after a little while, he notices there's a little boy sitting next to him. And the little boy's looking at him, saying, why are you crying? So the soldier explains the trouble that he's got, that he wants to speak to the president, that there's no way that he can get in. And the little boy says, hmm, come with me. And the little boy takes him, and they walk around the back of the White House. And they walk up to a big gate, and the the, the soldier says, we can't go in there, it's the White House. And the little boy says, I think it'll be okay. And as they walk in, the soldiers come to attention as the little boy walks through. And the soldier's amazed. And he he follows the little boy in, and they walk through the kitchens. And uh, when, when they walk into the kitchen, the kitchen staff stop what they're doing, look down, and watch silently as the little boy walks through, and the soldier follows him. Absolutely incredible, incredulous. And they walk into the White House, and they walk past guards and sentries, and none of them stop him. And eventually, the little boy's knocking on a door. And there's a voice inside that says, come in. And the little boy opens the door and walks in. And there, sitting at a desk, is the president, Abraham Lincoln. And Lincoln looks up and he says, what is it, son? And the little boy says, father, I've met this man. He's a good man. He's a friend and he wants to speak to you. And Lincoln looks up and says, any friend of my son is a friend of mine. What can I do for you? And the the soldier is able to ask the president for leave and the president grants it to him. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what coming to God in prayer does for us. Through the son, in, this, in, in the case of the story, it was Tad Lincoln, the president's youngest son. But in, 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 to us, of course, the son is Christ. And through him, we can come directly to the father's throne. And we can give our petitions and our appeals directly to him. And there is power when the church prays together as a corporate body. There is a special dynamic that comes into play when the church comes together united in faith and purpose to seek God in prayer. And we're going to look at a very familiar and very cinematic passage this morning. Uh, And you can find it in Acts 12, but I believe the words are going to come up on the screen as well. Uh, And it's Acts chapter 12, and it starts like this. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. You see, Acts 12 begins with a body blow for the early church. The apostle James, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and a member of his inner circle, is put to death. Now, James wasn't the first Christian to be killed for his beliefs. That honor belonged to Stephen back in Acts chapter 7. But James was by far the most high profile to date, to die. James was there from the beginning. He was the fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. He and his brother John were one of the first disciples to be called by Jesus. And he was one of only three disciples that Jesus selected to witness his transfiguration. So James was about as big a figure in Christendom, that it was possible to be. And it must have come as a huge shock to the believers to discover that that James, like everyone else, could be killed. And it marked the beginning of a time of great persecution for the early church by the Jews. And seeing that persecution of Christians was popular with his subjects, the unscrupulous politician Herod Agrippa was keen to seize their leader, Peter, and have him killed too. But Peter's execution was going to have to wait until the festival of the unleavened bread was over. What was the festival of the unleavened bread? Well, this is, of course, God's command to the Jews to eat unleavened bread with the Passover lamb on the, on the night that the angel of death passed judgment on Egypt. And executing anybody during this seven-day Passover festival would have been against Jewish law. So Herod had to bide his time. Instead of ordering Peter's immediate execution, Herod has him arrested and thrown into prison. And as we'll see, guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Let's move on to to chapter, to, to verse four. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two trains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. After putting Peter in prison, Herod Agrippa ordered him to be guarded with the maximum security arrangement at that time for a prisoner. Four squads, each comprising four soldiers, guarding Peter around the clock. That's 16 soldiers guarding one man. Two soldiers were even stationed inside the prison cell and actually chained either side to Peter, with the other soldiers standing guard outside the prison cell. Now, when I first read that, I thought that sounded a bit like overkill. But Herod here was taking no chances whatsoever, particularly considering what had happened the last time apostles of Jesus, had been thrown into jail. On that occasion, which we can read about in Acts chapter 5, an angel opened the doors and brought them out. And the following morning, the jail was still securely locked and guarded, but when the doors were opened, there was no one inside, which must have been hugely embarrassing. So this time, Herod is taking no chances at all, even to the extent that he puts two soldiers inside the the cell with Peter, one on each side, bound to him. So Peter was in a pretty desperate situation. This is the night before Herod was going to bring Peter to trial. It wouldn't, let's be honest, have been much of a trial. It was a show trial. And it would have ended with Peter being brutally executed. And yet, here we see Peter just a few hours before his execution. And what's he doing? He's sleeping. Even in this situation, Peter has such a peace that he's able to fall asleep he's ready to meet god and he's prepared to meet god and death holds no fear for him why should it he knew better than most the very man who had conquered the power of death and he knew that his friend jesus was waiting to welcome him to his father's kingdom and that makes me pause for a moment and think about myself what about me if I knew with certainty that I was going to die in just a few hours' time, how would I be spending my last few hours on earth? Would I be frightened, angry, resentful, remorseful, scared, fearful, upset? These are all very human reactions. Or would I be like Peter, fast asleep, waiting? You know, I, I, we had, a, uh, I had a cousin called David. I have a very small family, Um, and my cousin David uh, lived in Leeds, and we would see each other, as all families do, once or twice a year. And when David was a very young man in his early 20s, he was diagnosed with a condition which is very rare. Uh, It was a cancer of the heart. And he had major surgeries, but unfortunately the cancer spread and was incurable. Incurable. And his church prayed for him, and, and the church that I was going to prayed for him. And, uh, and David was a very, very angry about his diagnosis. He wasn't a Christian. Uh, although his family around him were, he wasn't. Uh, he'd never made a profession of faith. And, uh, and he now was angry, angry with everybody, angry with his situation, angry with God that he didn't really believe in, angry with, with, with what was happening to him. And, um, and we watched over, the last, over his last few months as all of that anger evaporated. And miraculously, after the church and everybody was praying for him, he made a profession of faith. And he became a Christian. And he embraced his future with calm dignity and optimism and hope. And when he died, he died at peace surrounded by the family who loved him. And at his funeral, my cousin Liz said something which I will never forget. She said, and this is hard for her because she was so close, she and her brother were so close, but she said that she would rather have lost him now and know that she had him for all eternity than to have him for a few more years on this earth and lose him forever. And that's priorities. That's the difference. That's when God can, can take something that on earth looks tragic and hopeless and lost, and he can transform it into something that is incredibly powerful and beautiful. And God shows up when his people are prepared. And even though David's life on earth came to a very sudden end, God was still there in that situation and David my cousin took his last earthly breath knowing with confidence that he was safe knowing with absolute assurance that he was going to be with Jesus knowing as much as he was possible to know anything that he would be reunited with his family in a little while and only the power of God can take a situation that looks hopeless and turn it into a triumph and Peter was not expecting to survive the day. However, while Peter was sleeping in prison, there were people who were praying for him. And the word that the translators of the New International Version used to describe how they were praying is earnestly. Let's have a look at the next verse, if we can. Um, so Peter is sleeping between two soldiers. Um, there he is, bound between two chains and and. The sentry is standing guard at the entrance. And suddenly we're told that an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone into the, into the cell. But I want us to look very quickly at this word earnestly that the church were praying for. Because as, well, Peter was sleeping in prison, people were praying earnestly. And the word that the translator of the New International Version uses to describe earnestly is the Greek word ektenos. And that literally means stretched out. And that evokes an image, doesn't it, of people who are stretching out to God in prayer. Whether it's they're stretching out their hands or stretching out their bodies, they are stretched out. And it's the same word, incidentally, that is used to describe how Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. This prayer wasn't just earnest, it was desperate. It was urgent, it was pleading, it was fervent, it was vigilant. This wasn't a polite, eyes-closed, head-bowed, palms-together type of prayer. This was the urgent appeal of a group of people who had reached the end of their own strength and were now begging for a miracle. And God shows up when his people are stretched out in prayer. Have you ever had that experience? of a stretched-out prayer like that? It hasn't happened to me very often. I, I remember uh, many years ago, uh, I was um, running a youth group in a, in, a, in a church not far from here, and, uh, and we had it on a Friday night, and uh, we used to have a, a youth group, and they would come in, and there would be games and activities for them, but we also set up a little area in the back of the church, and we put some comfy cushions in there, and we called it a chill zone, and, and people could come in and they could chat about anything, anything that was on their mind, anything that was bothering them. And we would always make sure that there were at least two guys in there who could pray with them and encourage them and help them and try to hopefully give them some sort of scriptural perspective about what they were going through. And one evening, just out of the blue, every, every evening, we would gather beforehand. The, the, the church, uh, the, the, the leaders would just gather together and we would pray, obviously, for that... Um, for that, for that meeting and for that time together. And one evening, something just incredible happened. Some of the youth just asked if they could go to the front of the church and pray. And we said, yeah, absolutely. And they came to the front, no lights, no no music, no nothing. They just came to the front and began to pray. And the Lord moved in a way that I have never seen before. And there was an excitement, the electricity in the air. And, uh, and, the, and, they, and the following week, They brought people into the church to experience this. So suddenly we went from, can we have the children? Yeah, absolutely. We opened it up. We opened the church and they went in there. And and I can remember standing at the back of the the church uh, as week two, week three, standing at the back of the church and watching young people standing at the front of the church, praying for each other. Nobody told them what to do. And people getting saved. and and people making professions of faith and people who had made professions of faith the week or two before praying for other people to make professions of faith and this was just this was starting to happen and i can remember standing at the back of the church and you know the one thing i was on my mind as i was watching this was we've got to fix that light because there was a light directly above the church which was swinging. And I'll never forget it. And I, could wa- I was watching these because the, the church was dark. It was only the, the only light on. And as a result, it was like sending a spotlight up to the front and swinging back. It was like on a pendulum. And I was thinking, that light is not meant to be doing that. We've got to get that sorted. And so the following morning, I went to the, uh, the pastor of the church, and I said, we've got to fix our light. And he said, what do you mean? And I took him into the church, and I said, that light up there is swinging. It's, it's obviously come loose. And he said, it can't be. It's fixed to the ceiling. And I looked. And it was. How ridiculous. And yet, that's the memory, the, the abiding memory I can have of watching this pool of light going up and down, this circle of light, like a sl- almost like a spotlight. And yet there was no earthly way that it could happen. It was a phenomenal time. It didn't last for very long, three or four weeks, and it was over. It was gone. Uh, but it was, while what, what it happened, I will never, ever forget it. Let's get back to our story. Uh, suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter, uh, uh, he struck Peter on the side, and woke him up. "Quick, get up," he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then, verse eight, if we could, yeah. Then the angel said to him, "Put on your clothes and sandals," and Peter did so. "Wrap your cloak around you and follow me," the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that the angel was doing what was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Interesting. You know, there were at least ten obstacles that stood between Peter and freedom. He had two sets of chains attached to his wrist. He was attached to each of the soldiers on either side of him. There were two soldiers on the end of those chains. Then there was the door with sentries on either side of that door. And then there were two separate guard posts and finally an iron gate leading out into the city. So by all human accounts, escape was impossible. And when you think of prison breaks, you imagine prisoners silently tiptoeing past the guards. But the angel sent to free Peter wasn't exactly stealthy. First of all, he lights up the cell Then he has to prod Peter in his side to wake him up because he's sleeping soundly. Then he has to tell him to get up and get dressed. One imagines that the chains would have made a noise too as they slid off his hands onto the floor. And yet the soldiers guarding Peter don't see or hear anything. This isn't your typical prison break. I love how the angel even has to wait for Peter to get dressed properly before leading him out to safety, even to the extent of tying up his sandals. The iron gate opens all by itself, and they walk the length of one full street before the angel leaves him. And Now, Peter naturally assumes that he's still asleep and dreaming. He thinks he's seeing a vision. Peter's faith was imperfect. Let's, let's have those next verses, if we could. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping to happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. After coming to his senses and realizing that he is miraculously a free man, Peter goes to the place where he knows he'll be safe. Mary, we're told, is the mother of John, who was also called Mark, And many people believe that it's the same Mark who authored the gospel, according to Mark. And she must have been a pretty wealthy woman, for the house must have been quite large to accommodate all the people who had gathered inside and were praying. Also, we're told here it has a large outer entrance, and she also has servants who can answer the door. So we're told here in in verse 13, uh, Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. I love that. It's the middle of the night. Peter is about to be put to death, and the Christians are still praying. They've been praying since he was imprisoned, and they're still praying now. They haven't given up. They haven't gone back to their homes. They're still together, still stretched out in prayer, still praying fervently for their friend, still praying that God would somehow change the situation and it makes me realize that God shows up when his people are consistent and I love the little details that Luke adds to this account so he gives Rhoda a name we know her name she was Rhoda and even though she's a servant she has obviously spent time in the company of Peter and she immediately recognizes his voice through the door and she's so excited that she rushes back to tell the others that their prayers have been answered before she's even got to open the door. But the group's response to Rhoda's excitement is rather crushing. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. So they insult poor Rhoda. They accuse her of being mad, and when she keeps insisting, they decide it must be an angel. Now, what do you not thought that one through? Why, why would an angel be banging on a door asking to be let in? I mean, you know, anybody who knows anything at all about angels knows that the doors don't really bother angels. They can more or less go straight through them. Um, but they had been praying with great passion and fervor for God to save Peter. But when Rhoda announced that their prayers had been answered, their reaction let them down. They didn't believe that God could do what they had been praying for him to do. Their reaction should have been overwhelming joy, but instead they insult the person who brings them the good news that their prayers have been answered. And it's moments like these, isn't it, that make you realize that the New Testament is a really honest account of what happened. You know, the New Testament doesn't make any pretenses about these people. These are ordinary folk like us. They're not superheroes. They're ordinary people experiencing extraordinary events. Their faith was not perfect. It's one thing to pray for a miracle. It's another thing entirely to accept the miracle when it happens. For the Christians praying for Peter, they did not believe the report that Peter was standing outside the gate, even though that is exactly what they had prayed for. And in the same way, when, when, when my cousin David died, I felt that my prayers to God for his healing had failed. And I felt that all the church that had prayed for him had, over several weeks, had, we'd failed because David hadn't been healed. And when I shared this with, with Liz, his, his sister, Liz told me that I was a fool. And she said, God did heal David. He healed David from the inside. He saved his soul restored him and David died with great peace and love and joy in his heart as a result of those prayers and just because it didn't happen quite the way I thought I wanted it to happen it wasn't any less a miraculous work of God you know the believers didn't know what God would do for Peter but they knew what God could do and their imperfect faith coupled with their fervent persistent consistent prayer Move the hand of God. And we should not ridicule the early church for their belief, because very often we're in the same position. We have a mixture, don't we, of faith and fear. That should inspire us to continue praying earnestly, even though we may not have perfect faith. And it should be a comfort for all of us that God will show up even when his people lack faith. Have you ever prayed for, about something and then doubted if God could do it? When it happens, instead of giving thanks for answered prayer, you kind of take the credit. I've done that. I've lost count of the number of times I prayed for something to happen, and then it happens, and I forget to thank God for making it happen. You know, I'm relieved that God shows up in these circumstances even when I'm too stupid to see it at the time. You know, I've been out of work several times in my career. And every time I've been out of work, I've always thought it's the end of the world, and I've prayed fervently and passionately for a job. And then when I get a new job, I take the credit for it. Oh, I worked hard for that. Oh, the interview was really tough. But I got through it. I managed. I prevailed. I've got it. And then I look back over my career, and I can see how God has been moving me into situations where I can be useful to him. I don't see it at the time, but when I look back on it, I can see his hand on my life. And that's why it's always good to be accountable in prayer. And that's where the church comes in. It's why it's a good idea for us to pray together in groups. You know, we have a a men's group prayer hotline on WhatsApp, and I love it. When one of us needs prayer, we ask for it, and then everybody else on the app uh, prays, and then we can report back to let the group know what happened. I I used it last uh, last week. I, I suddenly found myself in a situation I'd never found myself in before where I was having to talk to about 300 people and um, and in a very sort of prestigious place. I was in the Royal Albert Hall in London of all places and uh, and I was facing a bank of uh, television cameras and uh, and, and radio people and for a moment uh, my my stomach just fell through my feet and uh, and, and I had absolutely crippling anxiety. And I prayed for my, I asked my my brothers on the WhatsApp for prayer, and I got the prayer. And I was able to go back to them afterwards and say, I got through it. We survived. Um, But the point is that that's a tremendously powerful tool because not only is it great when you have the whole church praying, but it's also great to see the answers to prayer. And it's great to be held accountable for those answers as well. Let's move on and finish our story. So chapter 16, sorry, verse 16, Peter, poor Peter, still standing outside, unable to get in, kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Peter continued knocking. And eventually, it seems that several of them went to the door to open it, and when they saw saw it was Peter, they were astonished. Now, the word translated as astonished here also means utterly amazed, which I think is probably a more appropriate translation. You can imagine the scene. It must have been totally chaotic and joyful. And eventually, Peter has to motion with his hand for them all to be quiet so that he can tell them the story of how God delivered him from prison. He then leaves to go somewhere else, presumably somewhere a bit quieter. he can go back to sleep. But I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when their earnest and desperate praying was transformed into joyful thanksgiving. You know, the Lord doesn't always let us see the answers to our prayers as immediately as that. But when he does, it can be spectacular, as it must have been on this occasion. And he tells them to go and speak to James and the other brothers and sisters. Now, obviously not the James who had just been killed. This James was the half-brother of Jesus, uh, who had come to believe in him after his resurrection and had gone on to become one of the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. You know, Peter wants others to share in the good news of his deliverance and the joy of the miracle that God has done to make it happen. And we finish our story in in verse 18. Uh, In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. I'll bet there wasn't. That's another typical example of understatement, I think, there in the Bible. Uh, No small commotion. You know, it wasn't until morning that the soldiers realized that the man they were guarding had escaped. Now, presumably, that was to give Peter plenty of time to get far away before the alarm was raised. And again, what a fly-on-the-wall moment that must have been. You know, Herod, who must have been looking forward to executing the leader of the church, had nothing, had nothing. The soldiers who were guarding him had no explanation at all as to what had happened. And they must have wondered until the very end of their lives how Peter had achieved this impossible feat. Now, in case you are thinking that times have changed, and this sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. I want to share with you an incredible story. There was a few years ago, a book came out, which you may have read, and it was called The Heavenly Man. And it's the story of Brother Young, who was um, basically, uh, a, 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 he, he's uh, in China. Uh, he is a, he set up, or helped to set up, uh, house churches in China, which were illegal. Um, and as a consequence, uh, faced the most horrific persecutions. He was in and out of prison. He was beaten up on more than one occasion. But his wor- the worst beating of all happened um, when he was sent to Zhengzhou Maximum Security Prison. And he was told that he would never, he would never leave it. Uh, not only that, but his legs were broken and beaten with clubs to stop him from escaping. And he was kept on the third floor. And he, his, his injuries to his legs were so severe that other inmates had to carry him to the toilet and back. It was a desperate, desperate situation. And then on May the 5th, 1997, so not that long ago, he had a vision. He woke up in that, ghastly hus- in that ghastly prison and he had a vision of his wife telling him to open the iron door. So he asked his guard for permission to use the bathroom And when they came to collect him and take him to the bathroom, he started walking. And guards, he noticed, looked straight through him. So he prayed with every step. He went down the steps. He reached the ground floor. And he found the iron door to the courtyard open. So he stepped through the courtyard, expecting at any moment to be shot by guards in the towers, looking down onto the courtyard. But on this bright, sunny day, he walked across the courtyard to the prison's main gate and he found that that was open too so he stepped out onto the main street outside and immediately a yellow taxi pulled up and a man inside asked him where he was going so he got into the taxi he gave the address of a christian family he knew in the town and it was only much later that day much later that day after he had told this story multiple times to, to, to several people who, who were obviously thrilled that he had escaped from prison, that he realized that his broken legs were completely healed and that he would walked all his way. And he is today the only person who has ever escaped from this notorious Zhengzhou prison. It was a huge embarrassment. They still don't know how he did it. There's been lots of theories, and some people say that uh, he must have been bribing guards to keep things open, and there was a huge internal sort of embarrassment. But the fact remains that he totally credits that to the power of God. And his story echoes Peter's in in many ways, doesn't it, which is quite fascinating. So the God who, who sent an angel to rescue Peter from his prison cell is still rescuing people From prison cells today and when the church prays when this church prays people's needs are met you know a person can be locked up in a prison of pain rejection addiction physical hardship spiritual suffering we can all be bound up by our own inadequacies our fears our insecurities there are people who are hurting and who are in desperate need of prayer just as peter was And because the early church prayed, Peter was released from his prison. What the the early church did for Peter, the modern church can do for the people around us who are imprisoned. And if we are the ones who are imprisoned, we too can experience his freedom from the chains that bind us. But first, we must pray. And if we pray, God has a huge surprise in store for us. You know, for 31 years, Charles Spurgeon, during the Victorian era, was preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And he became known as the Prince of Preaching because hundreds of people came to faith in Christ every year in his church and were baptized. His preaching and his writing were were pretty sensational, and people still read his, his stuff today. And other Christian leaders would come to his church to see if they could learn the secret of his success. And one Sunday, five young college students who wanted to become pastors visited the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear Charles Spurgeon speak. And while they were waiting outside for the church doors to open on that Sunday evening, Spurgeon came up to them and he said, would you like to see the powerhouse of this great church? And of course, the young preachers were delighted at the opportunity to see the secret to the power behind the great church. So Spurgeon led them along a long hallway, down a stairway and cautiously opened a door at the bottom and what the five young men saw astonished them because looking through this open doorway they saw a large room in which they were gathered about 700 church members all bowed in prayer all stretched out and asking God for his blessing on the service that was to come that said Spurgeon is our powerhouse Is the power of prayer. John 5 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. There is huge power when God's people pray. Prayers will be answered, people will be amazed power will appear. Amen.